welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. Uh, today, we are speaking with uh, Dr. Suzanne Newcomb, who is uh, a lecturer in Religious Studies at The Open University and Honorary Director of INFORM. We're speaking with her about her fascinating look at uh, yoga in Britain uh, <laughs> on our book called Yoga in Britain. Suzanne, welcome to the program. I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Your book, tell us about how you got into studying. Uh, there's lots of lots of interesting content in your book, but tell us about how the project started up for you. Oh, gosh. Um, it started an embarrassingly long time ago. Um, probably I started looking at this in about 2002, and there really wasn't a lot of literature on contemporary yoga um, way back then. There's been such an amazing explosion more recently. And my my basic question was a, was a pretty naive one in a way of, of how can how and why did something ostensibly Indian called yoga become so normal? Um, how, how on earth did that happen? And I I had done um, some training in sociology of religion but wanted to, because it was a how did this become popular question, I wanted to do it in a historical context. So, um, I, and I also wanted it to be local. I, I thought about doing it in a wider context, um, like the United States or Europe, um, but both of those quickly spiraled out of control. And Britain, and, and more specifically England, most of the information I got was England is nice and small and um, a really rich source of data. Um, so I, I really, really enjoyed getting my um, teeth into why why yoga is something that normal middle class people do. Why why people like walking into people in the streets and saying you're studying yoga. Sometimes they say, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry, I haven't gone to a yoga class recently, and it feels a bit funny. Like why why should I think you should have? Um, but even that bigger question of how did they come to that have that conversation anyway? I, I found really curious and fascinating. That's certainly a fascinating phenomenon. Um, now, given that you're looking at yoga in a particular context, uh, I think you make a really good point at the outset at the outset of your of your study, talking about um, almost the necessity of looking at yoga in a particular context. Can you talk to us about you know um, the, the yoga, the various yogas, or or the idea of yoga being something essential and true that we can participate in versus it being uh, something very uh, context dependent. Could you say a bit about that in terms of your study? Well, I guess when I first started, I was quite preoccupied, as people often do um, when, they, when they start a PhD, of, of what exactly you're studying and how are you going to delineate the subject. And I decided to take a, a fairly broad reportive definition of anyone who says they're doing yoga, I'll look at. Um, but then as soon as I started doing oral history interviews and getting into particular contexts, it seems like everyone I interviewed, and I interviewed quite a lot of people, had a, had a line somewhere in the interview that was kind of everyone misunderstands yoga, except for me. Let me tell you what, what yoga really is. Um, and I, I found that kind of, rhetorical move fascinating on the one hand people are really preoccupied with having authentic true yoga on the other hand it seems like what people are doing is actually very much specific to their teachers to their contexts um and i i think there's other sources of authenticity that are actually more important to contemporary practitioners than this narrative of original true yoga story and I was also quite um kind of the gap between doing the research and actually getting around to publishing the book quite a lot of material came out about yoga in America because America North America is such a big um context so economy and um a lot was about yoga in the neoliberal context and as a kind of is, is this just um people making money on a spiritual tradition and, and selling out and what I was uncovering in my British research was actually there was a very different social context involved that wasn't neoliberal in its origin, even if there's a kind of neoliberal gloss on the contemporary yoga scene, just as there is in many places around the globe. 
So that itself is a fascinating point. Tell us a bit about what your research shows about uh, the different contexts, uh, sort of the North, uh, the American soil versus the British soil, um, uh, where yoga takes root. Well, in Britain, um, there were lots of different entry points at different times, and lots of individuals from from colonial India and then independent India who came to Britain and wanted to promote yoga, to, to promote their teachings of what they thought would make a, a spiritually better place. So um, some of the contemporary issues around cultural appropriation um, are, are coming from a very different place in Britain. And this isn't really a focus of many discussions in the contemporary yoga scene in Britain, um, partially because so much of the yoga in its initial wave of popularity was directly from Indians who kind of said, come, come and do this. It's, it's something that's really good to do. Um, and then there were also obviously quite a few um, British people of, of various backgrounds, um, often upper middle class, um, kind of more privileged sectors of society but um, who, who also did kind of authentic searching um, for something and, and felt that they were really presenting something that had value for people's meaning and purpose and health and physical well-being. So um, a question I wanted to ask uh, earlier was we talked about um, sort of the way or you're looking at yoga in a particular um, cultural uh, context. What about the when? Uh, what what time period are you focusing on? So the book um, has a, a broad time period of kind of the the twentieth century into the beginning of the twenty first century, kind of into the present. But most of my research really concentrates between the the post war period, so so nineteen forty five to about nineteen eighty, so just before. Um, Margaret Thatcher started making the neoliberal economic reforms, which really changed the fabric of how yoga was accessed by um, people in Britain. And so what, what data are you looking at? Uh, what are you looking at in terms of your data for that period of time? Um, there's a surprisingly rich amount of data. There is a lot of newspaper reports um, and that's become more accessible through, through digitization in the last few years. There's also quite a lot of people still around who started, who were teaching yoga in the in the 60s and 70s, and so I was able to capture some of that information. Um, I also relied a lot on archives of publishing houses who were publishing information um, about Eastern religions or Oriental religions, they were sometimes called. Um, in particular, I found the archives of Penguin, um, Ellen and Unwin, um, and it, it, th those two were particularly rich in their detail of, of who was getting published and why, and the networks of people who were involved in making decisions about what got published and why. Um, it was it was quite a small closed group, in fact. So then, in terms of, um, I guess that material is in your first chapter of the literary elite. Um, so, who was getting published and why? Um. Well, to begin with, um, it was largely Theosophical Society um, influenced publications. And I think that one of the, the, a lot of people know that Theosophical Society is this kind of esoteric, odd organization founded by a Russian woman um, that had lots of scandals about letters from ascended masters and um, and then there's the other side of the society in India where they did a lot to promote independence and um, national pride. But in Britain, it really seemed to function like a, a place for people who were interested in alternative understandings of religion and spirituality generally to meet and explore these ideas. And although there were very... Um, uh, well-documented schisms between different groups within the society. Should they go with Eastern esotericism or Western esotericism? And I think there were quite often personality conflicts. They also had um, a bookshop, a distribution network, and reading rooms where people could come in and pick things off the shelf. They were 
very much um, overlapping with spiritualism at the time, um, with, with could you contact the spirits of dead people, particularly after World War I. Um, it kind of gained popular in America after the Civil War and in Britain, it got extremely popular after World War I with the death of so many people. But um, also they're, they're networked with the Society of Psychical Research, um, with a lot of Western magical people who, who are interested in esoteric traditions and ritual magic. And these people kind of took out adverts in each other's journals and you might come across all sorts of ideas there. So the, the, and the people who were going there weren't cranks. They were really interested in reassessing the Christian church and institutional religiosity. They're often quite well-established, educated people who were kind of saying, for the first time I have access to all these different teachings of across the world, what is, what is the truth for me? Um, so a kind of a seekership like you saw in the, the 1970s, but uh, in, a, in a very elite, um, a, more, a much more elite um, urban context. And in addition to the circle of literature, what else do you look at um, during your study? Um, let's see. There was um, lots of great little stories that came up. Um, so I was fascinated by a few a few people in in particular. Um, in the and some some of the stories I'd love to to get in more that I just didn't have space in this book and, and maybe I'll come back to them in a in a later project. Um, one of the people that I guess the next chapter going through chronologically is about a man called Wilfred Clark who wound up setting up the British Wheel of Yoga, and this was a, a fascinating, very very British thing. Again, before the internet, how did people network? Well, Wil and how did they find out about something called yoga? Wilfred Clark. Um, was uh, he served in the First World War and he said that his first experience of, of yoga or his first mention of yoga was from some Indian servicemen who were serving alongside of him who quoted the Bhagavad Gita in, in trying to inspire fortitude in the face of battle. And he thought, oh, this is interesting. And so then he came back to Britain and was into amateur dramatics and um, took a correspondence course on Oriental philosophy from the Oxford Correspondence um, Centre. So that's kind of adult education before some of the first adult education. And there's starting to be books published on yoga in this kind of interwar period. And he um, at some point got a caravan in the back of his backyard in Birmingham and started, he, he worked in local newspapers and he started putting out adverts in local newspapers saying like, are you interested in yoga? Write to me. And then he'd have a, a little card filing system and he'd put all the people in the same geographical area in touch with each other. And then he started sending out um, bulletins, which he typed out on carbon copy paper to these people. And um, through these networks, he, he was first the um, Wheel of British Yoga um, and then eventually the British Wheel of Yoga. Um, he encouraged people to start teaching each other and then putting themselves forward to teach others. Um, and he kind of developed his own his own vision of what what yoga was which was um in, inclusive and in in some ways very non-dogmatic but in other ways um quite dogmatic in that it, it, it must include philosophy it must include meditation it must include relaxation and a little bit of asana but it's primarily philosophy and by philosophy he was primarily drawing on Vivekananda's um, explanations of bhakti, raja, jhana, and um, hatha yoga. Um, and, and probably in with hatha yoga, certainly at the lowest end of um, esteem. Um, he was amazingly successful at, at, at this networking and in defining a kind of a British interpretation of yoga. And in the 1960s, when more gurus started to come to Britain more frequently, he had a very much anti-guru position in that you should, you should take teachings from everyone but not affiliate yourself to any one person. Um, and, and, and too much devotion to, to one figure is, is unhealthy. So um, it's interesting then, uh, even in, in these early days, that his vision of yoga um, was more similar to, to something including um, 
all eight of the limbs rather than just postures. Um, so what happened uh, later with the charismatic gurus? Um, gosh, all sorts of things happened. Um, uh, there were several people who tried to set themselves up as charismatic gurus before the 1960s. Um, and in a way, one of, one of the things I found interesting was, was the 1960s started kind of maybe with the, the Beatles discovering the Maharishi in, in 1968, I believe. But it started much later than the kind of big explosion in, in young people's popular interest was really 69, 70, early 70s. And I, I had expected it um, to be earlier. But what you had in the early 60s was a lot of middle class women going to do yoga um, as adult education. So there was already a, a kind of a, a thousands of middle class British women were already doing yoga before alternative um, gurus started showing up. Um, and, and what were just a quick uh, footnote? What were those women interested in? Do you find? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, and I think they were interested in. I think that the the yoga classes they accessed, which were often in physical education departments, um, despite the British Wheel of Yoga's disapproval of this. Um, the, one of the, the most interesting figures, um, which I was really excited to uncover in my research, was this woman called Yogini Sunita, who was born um, Bernadette Cabral as a very anglicized Indian in a Bombay suburb with English as her first language. She wore um, Western suits when she worked at the Italian embassy in Bombay. Um, but then she moved to, to Birmingham just before immigration made it um, immigration changes made it harder for Indians to to resettle in Britain. And once she was in Birmingham, um, she found that people weren't too interested in an Indian piano teacher, but they were very interested in an Indian yoga teacher. So she put her hair up in a bun. She started wearing saris and introducing herself as Yogini Sunita. And she was getting hundreds of students in the Birmingham Athletics Institute. And teaching, um, there's a few, um, her children are still um, safeguarding her legacy. And there's a few st people still teaching it. But it, it's, it's a different form than, is, um, than you would see today. There's a lot of Padmasana, um, a kind of a flowing posture. And her signature um, teaching was a slip second. So if, if you can just forget all your worries and have complete peace for one second, that's worth more than six hours of sleep. And this is where the attraction to women come in. So she was kind of setting herself up as, as almost this, this superwoman of she had three children, but she had time for everything. Um, and she had time to help everyone de-stress. Um, and uh, what she, she, she said something about a true yogi should not have a wrinkle on their brow. So it's almost about an attitude to life. And then if you look at her teacher training, she had one teacher training session before she kind of tragically died in her early 30s, uh, about 1970. I might have the date a little bit wrong. <coughs> um, uh, but a lot of the women, you, you can see there was a great camaraderie between the women. They came to the classes um, to get out of the house. That might have been their break from childcare and child work. And increasingly, as, as women found... Um, employment in adult education, teaching yoga. Um, it was a kind of useful second income that gave gave a woman some pocket money. And this was before women were were in the workplace very much at all. So it was it was fairly elitist in that uh, the primary target audience was housewives, but it also offered housewives some real a real chance to have autonomy over their bodies to explore what was going on for them to relax to forge new social connections. Um, and the autonomy of, over their bodies also became important in how it intersected with second wave feminism and uh, reforms to childbirth movements, which yoga was a, a big part of in the 1970s. So what other charismatic uh, teachers do you look at? Um, well, before we get into the, the kind of guru scene of the 1960s, which is really a lot of fun, um, BKS Iyengar was a huge influence in Britain and I, one of the arguments I tried to make in the book was that it was actually getting into the adult education service 
in Britain, which secularized and standardized his teaching into uh, this format of syllabuses and distance training programs so that it could be exported globally in a, in a standardized, recognizable way. And he, he came into Britain on the back of Yehudi Menuhin, who is a world-famous violinist, and he got some early um, publicity in the BBC. He, he kind of was into the upper-class networks that Menuhin um, provided him access with. And um, through these connections, he was introduced to a chap called Gerald York, who was able to help him get like, on yoga published and helped him revise it and, and bring up the standard of English. And he also, through Menuhin's sister, was introduced to um, the head of the PE department in the Inner London Education Authority, a man called Peter McIntosh. And Peter McIntosh um, had a Grecian ideal of physical culture where he felt that physical culture was really spiritual in its essence and necessary for uh, a well-rounded human being. So although he was quite strict and the education authority kind of contract with Iyengar said that only teachers, um, only gurus approved of by Iyengar are allowed to teach in London on public funds. Um, we don't want any, any language relating to spirituality and only direct instruction on asana and pranayama. Um, so that did not come from Iyengar. And, and in fact, his earlier um, presentations involved extensive quotes from the Bhagavad Gita um, in, in the kind of newspaper write-ups. So the, the shape and the kind of global um, product of Iyengar Yoga, I would argue, was actually really shaped by the needs of the adult education system in London and the ideology of this chap, Peter McIntosh, who, who saw physical culture as, um, as more than just physical. And Iger was willing to take this on in his um, correspondence about it was because he, he, he thought a better, a better life, um, a, a ethical, more ethical behavior. And essentially, the principles of yoga can be taught without mentioning the relig religious words. Um, so there's a kind of, um, you, you don't have to have lots of talk about God to actually help people find their own um, way to a more spiritual life. So how would you say this is uh, uh, continuity or, or um, divergence from what was going on with uh, the wheel of British yoga? Well, they, there was quite a lot of conflict and quite a lot of, of jealousy um, in, in terms of um, the British wheel was, was really unhappy to be shut out of the London teaching venues um, and also vehemently was ideologically um, opposed to the focus on asana. They thought that was um, perverting yoga in, in much of the same arguments you see. And also there was a lot of discussion at the time about the perhaps um, violent methods Iyengar was using. To He was compared to a drill sergeant. He, it was openly discussed that he hit students at times. To And, and the people who appreciated Iyengar's teaching it felt this was in line with maybe the kind of old school PE teaching they had in school or military drills and um, felt that it, it woke them up but for people who um, other, other people found this completely anti-ahimsa anti um, the higher principles of ethical behavior and that he was just a, a contortionist show-off <laughs> so all these debates were happening in the 1970s in Britain and the, the camps um, sometimes were quite antagonistic to each other. So you won't see many Iyengar teachers um, participating in the bulletin of the, the British Wheel of Yoga, which had a lot of public, published every month throughout the late 60s and 70s. Um, and they more slowly developed their own networks and um, publications, the Iyengar movement did. But the Iyengar movement always had a foothold on the um, physical education side. So if people were looking for precise physical discipline, um, they would go to an Iyengar class. And there was actually in practice quite a lot of crossover in that people, people would drop in and, and take a, and, and improve their asana and then go do with it what they wanted.
and and on an individual level i think there was there was actually quite a lot of discussion so there was there was both animosity and um integration in the opposing camps and so um in your chapter i think it's chapter four where you discuss the middle class women uh, who join evening classes um these women sort of uh, start off, as you say, looking for a distraction or, or, or looking for health benefits. Um, can you talk about whether or not they were looking for or ended up getting more than that? Like, was there a spiritual dimension to to these classes as well? I think it it's a bit hard to say um, in any... Uh, I mean, certainly, and it depends on what you mean by spirituality. Certainly some women um, started off with an idea that it, it was spiritual. Um, other women or other, other practitioners, I think there's no, no reason to gender it particularly, um, had a very clear religious identity of their own and they didn't necessarily feel like attending an asana-based class um, threatened their own pre-existing affiliation and then the, the the question is 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 do people cross over over time um, and in one of the, the the first bit of research I did on yoga was actually a big survey of Iyengar practitioners in two thousand and one, and that suggested actually there wasn't people kind of started off with largely a spiritual intention or or physical intention in that particular because because of course Iyengar yoga is is a very um, ostensibly physically oriented practice, although it's changed since the the 1970s quite a lot and is incorporating more overtly spiritual elements now than it did then. Um, but I think, I think what's actually interesting is the, the most popular teachers were always bringing in life lessons and ethical reflections and perhaps aspects of the yamas and niyamas into their asana teaching. So while, um, so, so it's kind of like, um, what, what is the violence between the unevenness in your right and left sides or as you um, extend um, one, one of the um, uh, teachers who did a lot to popularize yoga in London was a woman called Penny Neal Smith and her students, she had died before I, I did this, but her students really fondly remembered her passion for social justice and anti-racism and, and remember her often bringing in reflections on contemporary social movements into the subtext of the asana instruction. Um, and so are, are those kind of reflections is trying to live your life more morally and ethically um, with having maybe an agnostic approach to God. I think, I think that's very common in Britain. Is that spiritual? Um, I, I guess it depends on, on, on what you think, what you think is the, where, where people should, should have their attention. There seems to be this, um, this, the, the, there's a running theme of attention, probably to this very day of, of yoga as physical postures, primarily or exclusively, versus um, yoga as grounded in a particular religiosity or a, a, a path towards um, human virtues, uh, something much more subtle than physical health benefits. And so this tension seems to have been there. Um, if I'm understanding correctly, I mean, throughout, uh, throughout the period you're studying from 45 to 1980, would you say that's yeah, the case? Yeah, absolutely. Or, or um, would you say it morphs or there's a pendulous yeah, sway? Or, no. Sorry, say that again. Would you say that's the case? Yeah, absolutely. The, the tension is there throughout. And even in the earlier physical culture journals, um, oh, where yoga was also popularized in the, in the 20s and 30s, which Mark Singleton's done a bit more work on. Um, but so, so there was definitely this tension. But I think also what gets forgotten was there's actually a really deep um, Western, if, if we have to use those kind of words, um, tradition of physical phys physicality as a spiritual endeavor and using the body as a tool for um, more meaningful ends. Um, so, so I think that part of the, 
for a lot of people working with their bodies in a serious way, in a serious discipline, it's more than just physical. And I think we tend to forget about that when we look at this. Is it spiritual? Is it physical? Um, it's a lot more complex. People, pe people's embodied experiences is more complex than that. So um, after your chapter on, um, on women and their experience of yoga, uh, you have a, ch a chapter on popular music in the counterculture in the 60s and 70s. Do you want to say a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's just so much fun. Um, and it, it, totally. um, it was really fun to research and explore. I, I mean, one of the things I, I think it is important to realize how much came before. And in many ways, this was the icing on the cake. Um, but it, everything really exploded and really so many of the big names touched on, um, things to do with yoga and the Maharishi and what was really, um, some of the one of the, the more fun things to, to come across were, were these people I could interview so particularly Muz Murray who operated um, Gandalf's Garden so, so Gandalf's Garden was like the classic happening um, and it actually sprung back to over a, a previous house happening called Center House which also incorporated a lot of yoga and macrobiotics and experimental lifestyles um, but Gandalf's Garden was just fantastic because it has this amazing psychedelic artwork which incorporates um, the ideology of, of Tolkien's um, Lord of the Rings, um, this kind of a poetic um, exploration. Um, and and Musmuri is still around, still teaching mantra meditation and has a really, really good memory of his crazy life. Um, but uh, so to quote a little bit about the gatherings, they say, um, uh, soul gardeners and seekers of the miraculous get together for vibration raising study, discussion, Chinese tea and soul stimulation. Sessions begin with mantra meditation. No problem for beginners who can just sit and absorb the vibes to rarefy the atmosphere. Then follows reflections on the eternal why of our existence from any angel open to us, initiated by the gardeners or by visiting yogis, occultists, healers, mediums, monks, astrologers, writers, researchers, or other groups well into their own thing who have offered to come along and be a catalytic element for discussion. Um, and so um, he, he, he was really clocked into the huge music scene and he had um, the well-known DJ John Peel writes and he had benefit concerts um, where people like um, uh, some of the big names. Um, oh gosh, this is this where I got stuck before. Um, so the big names came. Um, Mark Bolan, that's what it was. And David Bowie um, both did benefits for Gandalf's Garden. And um, he, he tried to have it as an, an an alternative to the drug scene like 3HO also did and, and 3HO came at this time and the early Shivananda Center in London was also very much part of this exper experimental happening and um, people who had been traveling who were interested in all sorts of, um, of, of thinking outside the box and, and Gandalf's Garden has fantastic issue on trepanning where you, you drill a hole in your head and how this compares to headstand. Um, and uh, now it's just just such fun to read about. But what was also interesting is is how uh, Muds Murray, his idiosyncratic spiritual vision spiritual vision came about on his um, travels through Africa and spiritual experiences he had there, which actually goes back to um, a, Gerald York had similar experiences as well as Alistair Crowley. And there's a whole um, pe people were doing the hippie trail having the, the hippie travel experiences for the whole of the 20th century. Um, and, and, and this kind of all came together in a unique time in the, in the early 70s where people really tried to, to live in an alternative, um, non-commercial way. And Gandalf's Garden always was operating on a shoestring as a, this, this drop-in centre on the King's Road in Chelsea, which is a very posh place that... Is, is incredibly expensive to even get a toehold in today. Um, 
and he distributed magazines throughout Europe, which would help popularize the, the movement and the art and just the kind of coolness of it all. But um, they never had a, they never set up a way to ensure they had enough money to keep going. Um, and people were, were likely to get sidetracked in selling, selling the magazines for buying and more immediately entertaining um, needs that they might have had. And, and so it, it unfortunately didn't last that long um, just because the, the, the structures, the social and financial structures to keep it going in such an, an expansive freeform vision um, weren't there. And a lot of the connections and organizations did maintain themselves and, and slowly transformed into things more stable. So with the Shivananda Center, which was very much two women who um, had about a year's experience um, of Shivananda yoga in Canada, um, uh, came and kind of sent up the first Shivananda Center in, a, in, the, in the house, which um, was kind of communally shared. Um, and much more, the, the gender balance in the, the hippie scene here was much more balanced than in the adult education scene, where it was much more women. And this was, this was much more of a mixed bag. Um, but the Shivananda people who set up the original centre got a bit um, discouraged when um, more central control came in from the Shivananda organisation that already had a, an established network of centres internationally. And they they moved on with their guru, the original people, and um, and, and a very different Shivananda organisation appeared. And Shivananda Yoga, interestingly, has been much less influential in Britain than in Germany and in, in many other places in the English-speaking world, um, partially because of these influences in the publishing houses. And it wasn't, Shivananda didn't actually get, a, his books were published, were, were distributed in Britain, but he didn't get a British publisher or promotion network, partially because of the judgment of, of Gerald York, who advised a lot of the publishing houses on, on what to publish and what not to publish. And in his view, um, the the yoga promoted by Shivananda was much less coherent than that, say, offered by Iyengar or, or some of the other um, teachers at the time. So why was the yoga uh, offered by Shivananda? Can you tell us a bit about that, um, about that distinction between uh, Iyengar and Shivananda? Um, well, Shivananda tried to bring much more um, uh, bhakti yoga, devotion, um, and much more selfless service. And so the, the early, um, they, they, they did teach asanas and pranayam, um, but there was a sense of it was a lifestyle and everyone should help out in the center um, and, and coming from this kind of hippie communal um, spirit. Um, and an idea that the kind of any true engagement with yoga really means all these these aspects of, of their life um so uh, the shivananda centers was um less kind of goal oriented it was more exploratory um and like um the t the teachers would follow there weren't wasn't a direct um, framework for how do you teach asana how do you know if an asana was good or bad it was more like a lot of the British wheel of yoga you, you read instructions for a book and much more breath oriented so inhale um, arch up um, exhale go back and um, inhale twist to the left um, so there, they, they didn't want people to strain they weren't striving for perfection in any posture but it was more about um, uh, relaxing, being kind, joining in, thinking about um, thinking about the spiritual was a very much an important part of of the Shivananda context in a way that it was kind of pushed to the side in um, mainstream Iyengar classes. Why don't you tell us a bit about yoga as therapy? Um, so that's a theme that, that reoccurs throughout the history of yoga in the 20th century. And it, it obviously comes from some of the physical culture, remedial um, exercises, which have origins in 
um, in, in Ling's Swedish gymnastics, which may or may not have connections with um, Taoist exercises. And there's a whole body of literature on that, that um, in the background. But in Britain, um, yoga was always presented as, um, as, as a cure for modern ills. And in the earlier um, 20th century, there was an interesting chap called Desmond Dunn who, who really was one of the first maybe to, to market it as relaxation for the stresses of modern life. And he, he did a very interesting survey just after the Second World War about, do people know what yoga is? No, but my, my yogism um, can help them with their, their stress and strains. Um, but also, it, the, the, so the breathing, being more fit has health, has, is good for health as well. But also um, a lot of these movements that we're seeing a resurgence of now, so yoga for disabled people, yoga for specific injuries, um, a lot of people who were converts to Iyengar's methods um, had serious injuries that they felt were addressed and improved by Iyengar yoga um, or by Iyengar's personal interventions when medical doctors had given up on them. And I think this is a theme that comes up again and again, not just with um, yoga in Britain, but also some of my more recent work on, on Ayurveda in India was that there's there's a whole host of ills of the body and mind that are chronic and debilitating that people experience a shift of when they do some of these practices. Um, and that feel good um, change keeps them coming back and is kind of a, a kind of embodied conversion experience to the practice, if not an ideology. But at the same time, yoga in, in, as therapy has had to walk a, a very fine line in not making medical claims, in not um, necessarily presenting itself as a cure for any specific condition. Um, and as we're getting more regulation in, in therapy yoga, this kind of um, goes back to a long history of how do we regulate um, yoga teachers, what, what's a good use of public funds, what should insurance pay for, um, but also, who, who, how do you make sure that people don't get hurt? And these aren't new discussions at all. These are things that were being discussed in the 70s. Um, and Iyengar, Iyengar's approach was seen as a, as a kind of um, uh, having a, a minimum standard of safety to it, which um, some local education authority um, officials felt was more reliable than the teaching of um, some of the British wheel, which had maybe less attention to the detail of, of postures or didn't necessarily um, prohibit people with certain conditions from doing, say, a headstand or something. Um, so yoga as therapy has both been an inherent part of its appeal and why people do it, but it's also been, like so many other things in this area, quite ambivalent in terms of how it presents itself and it's, it's got to be quite careful to not overstep into the bounds of medical professionals, which are, are very, um, very powerful in terms of what what is appropriate to say is is a cure or a, a solution for a problem. So, perhaps um, this is a good opportunity to talk about what you talk about in your eighth chapter in terms of the diversity of practice and practitioners of yoga. Yeah, so um, I think that um, that kind of comes back to where I started in how I interviewed so many people who, who said no one really understands what yoga means, but, but let me explain it to you. Um, and I think there, there has been a lot of kind of a secretship in, in the attitude of people who have explored yogic practices or identified and taught yoga, um, identified with and taught yoga over the years. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's quite easy to, for a lot of people, and, and hopefully my book and a lot of the other scholarship that's coming out now is, is helps contribute to an understanding of the diversity of, of different ways people use and apply the concepts and techniques of yoga. And it's not just um, a kind of superficial pick and mix spirituality, 
but there's a lot of different ways of of engaging with these ideas and practices um, for personal transformation um, and it it's kind of like like with so many other religious traditions um, it's kind of a, a an invitation knowing, knowing someone's committed to something in some ways an invitation to find out more rather than assume that you know what their yoga what their understanding of yoga is would you say this diversification of which you speak is a function of um, yoga in this um, 20th century British context, or would you say there's a certain diversification of yoga that's a function of just the various ways in which um, these practices have indigenously been engaged? I think this is more, um, uh, there's a specific way that people in Britain have been presented yoga and how they've engaged with those concepts, but I think that this is more uh, pervasive in the Indian traditions and the way that um, the Indian traditions engage with finding God and and practices and techniques in which one can connect with the the world greater than one's small self. Um, and you you see this great diversity of practices um, when you look at at yoga in twentieth century India and how it transforms from, from something associated with um, specific ascetic communities um, and, and maybe more extreme practices to encompassing the physical culture, um, nationalistic, healthy body movement. But I mean, but even today, people um, are very willing to draw upon, um, in, a, in a very generous way, the techniques and practices and understandings which facilitate they're experiencing the divine in however they understand it. And so I think that there's something broader about the techniques of yoga and that way of engaging with the more than mundane world of our daily concerns, um, which, which maybe reflects something um, that, that's more pervasive about the Indian traditions of religiosity than just um, the specific way the British public has engaged with it, which is also very specific and about their own unique history and the structures which popularized it and the, the social context which enabled people to access these ideas. So there's obviously a wealth of uh, material in your study of yoga uh, in Britain during this period. Um, how do you um, how do you bring it all together? What do you what do you overarchingly find or argue in your study? I think that it's really to highlight how um, complex and multi-layered yoga is, and that authority for these traditions and the history of these traditions is much more rich and um, interculturally in, in intra. Um, um, conceptually layered, the the idea that there is a, a a single authentic way of transmission um, or or lineage of transmission um, it is becoming complicated by a lot of scholars' work. Um, but understanding in in going in depth into one specific location where it was popularized, where there were these diversities of engagement of understanding. Um, can help you can help you the reader um think about if if you're an academic what criteria you want to use how does it engage with your your research interest but if you're a practitioner or or just someone who's interested in yoga and popular culture um it it's about thinking more clearly about what what criteria you want to use for an authentic practice and it's it can't just be an imagined historical um, tradition. It has to be based on criteria, I, I, I believe, more on what's happening here and now and on how people, what people are doing with the practices, how is it um, affecting their behavior, their treatment of other people, their understandings, um, how, how are they drawing on their own experience in a helpful and mature way. But that's more my, my personal um, evaluation at the end of all my study. <laughs> on this subject about what, what might be a more authentic practice than others. Um, and I don't, I don't think that, that you necessarily need to come to the same conclusions as me, but if you can just realize that um, 
it is so multi-layered and the intercultural um intercultural kind of marriages of ideas is really complex and what yoga is today is is not um the result of a transplantation of an indian tradition or the appropriation of an indian tradition but it was um it was kind of co-created between lots of different cultures and people often very proactively of indian origin um but also the the understandings and the the variety of ways that people chose chose to engage in in specific aspects of that of the, the wider yoga traditions it seems then that the, the that your findings um challenger or 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 um, how to say that um it, it's sort of a uh, difficult to take a sort of essentialist or fundamentalist attitude to what yoga is based on your examination of yoga in one nation over these past few decades would you say that's the case yeah absolutely and that brings brings me on if i can i can push my next edited book um, well you'll I, save me the, you'll save me the trouble of asking you about it so please go ahead um which kind of so, so one of the outputs of, of this very specific study is, is an edited book that um will come out the handbook of yoga and meditation that will come out hopefully later this year maybe early next year um co-edited with karen o'brien cop who's at roehampton and she was previously at soas but um one of the things we really want to explore in that book is um is just how complex these overlaps and different locations are. And, and obviously we do a, a, um, a limited job because you can only do so much in one book, but how, how does yoga and meditation studies, at least in the academy, they're, they're often kind of these siloed um, areas of expertise, but actually the practices and the words even um, overlap a lot. So trying to, to kind of break through that multi-layered complexity, but also to look at, we've got chapters on, um, yoga and meditation practices in Korea and Latin America and Japan, which all have um, very unique understandings and interpretations. Um, we look at it, these practices from a variety of doctrinal perspectives. And also one of the things I'm most personally fascinated in is the perspective of academic disciplines. And so I come from this sociologically informed historical perspective primarily. Um, but if you, if you're thinking, if you're coming from a philo philological perspective or a critical theory perspective or a digital or, humanities or perspective ethics. your questions are different and what you see is different and so what yoga or, or ethics yeah what you see is is completely different so what yoga and meditation are are actually different depending on what what questions you're interested in um and how you're what you're bringing to the subject so uh when uh, might this volume be out over the um, manuscript to Routledge, um, so we'll, we'll have to see if it's delayed, but, but hopefully in, in the next year, we're hoping. Well, then you'll have to come back on the program, either you or your or your um, or your co-editor or both can come back on the program and share your findings in that. I, I imagine there are a great many people. Yeah, I would love to. Thanks. Yes, I imagine there are a great many uh, folks in the audience who may have a relationship to yoga whether it's an object of study or personal practice and, and i'm sure this podcast uh has helped them to um understand the complexity of this thing we call yoga in the west um was there anything else uh in the book or in your research that you you would have liked us to touch upon mm. I didn't talk very much about the Beatles, um, but that's been covered so many <laughs> other places. So then, uh, <laughs> why, uh, that you know, but they're, I don't they're think, really good fun. I don't think you can get enough of the Beatles. So tell us about the Beatles in your book. <laughs> um, well, the Beatles were were of course incredibly influential in popularizing all sorts of Eastern spirituality because nothing had ever been as popular as the Beatles. And so when they started using um, sitars and, and when they went to see the Maharishi in Rishikesh, um, this really opened things out to a, a much wider audience. But what I actually found more interesting were the kind of um, more detailed connections 
um, so BKS Langer's sponsor, Yehudi Menuhin, he actually was really interested in um, in music, obviously, and he had this Asian music search circle um, with um, uh, another man, uh, the Agandes, and they um, they collected together musicians like Jacqueline Dupree, who was um, a world famous cellist at the time, um, and really helped promote Ravi Shankar and um, and Indian dance in London and kind of bring bring in the, the, the highest of Indian culture to things like the South Bank Centre, the, the best venues in London. This started in the early 60s, this kind of intercultural musical exchange. And it it was kind of um, foreshadowed by jazz musicians' exploration of world music to try to get away from um, the more oppressive Western traditions. And so it was, um, it was Menuhin's sponsorship and, and help as well that brought over um, Ravi Shankar, the sitar player, and George Harrison actually met him um, at, at the house of the Agandes, which is where Iyengar was teaching his asana classes for some time. And, um, and the, 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 the connections between music and dance um, were, were much more local. And then the, the story about how George Harrison um, uh, got involved with the International Society for Krishna Consciousness and kind of the um, was, was oh I've, I've been was it, his, his there's just some great stories about how he engaged with them and felt like a, a homecoming and the promotion of a, a really inclusive um, vision of of Indian spirituality by these these amazing. Um, uh, musicians who were really doing things new and exciting um, is is just really fun. <laughs> <laughs> definitely worth uh, definitely worth mentioning. Uh, let me ask just one sort of um, broad, maybe more creative question that requires you to extrapolate a bit. What do you see is what do you see as sort of the current knots to be entangled? in the modern yoga movement. I think you preempt them and maybe allude to uh, to this in your book, but what do you see as sort of, um, I don't know how to put it, maybe not to be entangled or rites of passage, or what do you see as sort of um, needing to happen in terms of yoga in the West and how we relate to it? Um. Uh, okay, so this is this is going a bit away from um, my my yoga in Britain research, um, but I think that the most crucial social issue at the moment is is about consent and how we relate to authority figures. And there's nothing new in this Me Too um, in yoga movement that we've seen in the last few years. All these, because I also come from a perspective of sociology, religion, and new religious movements, and all these gurus in the 60s and 70s had the same kind of scandals. Um, the complaints about perhaps Iyengar being too violent in his approach. There's there's nothing new about that. Those were always there. But what is different now is how we how we choose to um, interact and to see um, what we're, we might not be comfortable with as as a person, and 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 that consent to to discipline is something that is an ongoing negotiation and you, you get a certain amount of freedom by submitting your ego submitting your your body to a practice um, or to a teacher and there's there's nothing unique in yoga about this this is this is something that any athlete um, goes undergoes um, to some extent but I think sometimes there's an idealization idealization of spiritual teachers as whatever they do must be right and i i hope as a society we're becoming a bit more critical and both people who teach um traditions that they want to present as spiritual and ethical and people who want to want to be disciplined in a spiritual and ethical framework um both both of those sides of the coin need to be much more proactive in identifying um, what 
what they feel they can consent to sooner and having a an open discussion about things they feel uncomfortable with at a much sooner point. Um, and I, this is this is also the case with all sorts of relationships and power structures in our society at the moment. Oh, that's a important and, and uh, fascinating uh, connection to research. I think it's a great place to end to give folks something to think about. Um, so, um, thank you very much. Thank you for your time and thank you for this 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 really interesting work you're doing. I'd love to have you back on the program once you've done your collected volume sort of broadening out and looking at yoga and other uh, modern Western contexts. Uh, if, you, if you're up for it, we can chat again when that's out. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me. Um, you're welcome. Are you, uh, are we kind of off record now or? Um, uh, <laughs> we will be in a moment. Just stay okay. tuned. For those of you listening, um, uh, until next time, keep reading. <laughs>